Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast, a podcast channel here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran, but today I'm not your host. That's right. This will be a flip interview where I'm a guest along with my co-editor, McComas Taylor, of a brand new upcoming volume, Open Access, called Visions and Revisions in Sanskrit Narrative Studies in the Sanskrit Epics and Puranas. Uh, our host for today is a friend and colleague, Dr. Dominic Haas, who's a postdoctoral researcher at the Austrian Academy of Sciences. Dominic, we're all yours. Uh, thank you, Raj. Um, so, and thank you for, for handing over and uh, letting me play your role today as host of the podcast. And as such, it is now my honor to uh, welcome you, uh, Raj and McComas, to the podcast as interviewees. So uh, what we are talking about today is, as you mentioned, the volume you two co-edited and which will soon be published. Uh, The title of this volume is Visions and Revisions in Sanskrit Narrative. That's That's the title of the book you edited together. According to the introduction of this book, um, this the vision for it dawned upon you, Raj, some six years ago. Could you tell us a bit about the backstory? What was your vision? Uh, what did you want to create? And also, how did you make McComas see that vision? Uh, that's a great question. Sometimes you don't know if it's sharp vision or double vision, but anyways, here we are. Um, I think I think while I was dissertating, I just uh, it really dawned on me. It started dawning on me that we really there was this sort of landmark volume called Purana Perennis that took the temperature of the field of sort of you know Purana studies at the time, um, and so much has grown and changed. So I had in the back of my brain that we should somehow do something along the lines of Purana Perennis 2.0. Um, and it wasn't until I think the World Sanskrit Conference 2018, where McComas and I were editing the proceedings from the Purana section thereof, that I sort of pitched the idea, and um, he thought it was a great idea. And I circled back in earnest, I think, end of 2019, and said, "Look, let's do this. Um, you know, we've co-edited something together twice, and we haven't strangled each other. Actually, we quite enjoyed the process. It was great." So um, uh, let's let's join forces. I uh, you know I, I I'd like to work with you, and it'd be great to have somebody with a professorship and a press. The world has changed since, so there's tons of you know high caliber publications beyond the professoriate. So I realized that um, that part you know it was useful, but the really useful thing was McComas's uh, collegial um, contribution and his the, the 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 work between us flows. And also the opportunity to publish with his university's press, Australia National University's Press, which grants the awesome boon of, of, of having open access publications. I think they might be one of the very first open access uh, academic presses. And I know that I had Dominic on the podcast, you for, you know, that's what we talked about. We talked about your passion for all things yes, open yes. access. And I think you're very much a, you know, a visionary in that regard where you see that, you know, that's, that's where we need to go. We don't know how we'll get there, but we need to get there. And I, I pitched it to McComas and, you know, I was really sheepish at the time because I was in this sort of tenuous position of being, you know, an active scholar in the sense of publications, but sort of, you know, uh, self-employed or independent. And I didn't really know how people would respond. And I was, to my pleasant surprise, every person pretty much that I approached um, 
said yes. I said to McComas, look, I'll, I'll take care of all, you know, quote unquote, the monkey work, the administration and the correspondence. And um, before we knew it, we had this, this list of just this rich list of both towering figures in the field, one of whom contributed to Corona Perennis 30 years ago, um, and, and, and really, really sharp, uh, you know, newly minted uh, scholars. And so I'm not quite sure how this happened, McComas, but it happened. I'm glad you said yes to this strange idea. And I'm super, super glad that somehow uh, Wendy Doniger, much to our honor, uh, has agreed to write the foreword to this some 30 years after she had run a apprentice. But that's enough of my yammering, McComas. What is your recollection of the events? That's uh, pretty similar to the way I remember things, Raj. And it is a very good idea to review the field. And like you, Purana Perennis had had a big effect, a big impact on me as an overview of narrative studies, particularly in of Puranic studies. And it seemed to me that there was, there was a lack, there was a hole, there was a lacuna in the field, wasn't there, that we felt uh, an urge to fill. And I think one of the things that has become increasingly obvious with the passage of time is how narrative studies or what we call the literary lens has uh, has gained a place in academia or, or in in indological studies for almost since the beginning of indology it's had a focus on uh well particularly on 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 close philological work, the creation of critical editions, the search for the Ur text. But it's been very strongly coloured by uh, philosophical uh, exploration, by religious studies, by comparative mythology. But outside the Anglosphere, it seems to me, well, it seems to us, that the reading of Sanskrit narrative as literature, that is to say through a literary lens, is something that's been sorely, sorely neglected. And the reason it's so attractive to me is that I, I'm actually not a trained Indologist. I was trained in, in Chinese studies. And when I was an undergraduate, the only reason for studying Chinese was to be able to read the Chinese classics in their original language. That is, we studied language so that we could access literature. Now, I came to Sanskrit studies completely by accident, but I brought my training with me and I had thought in my naivety that the reason for studying Sanskrit was to read the literature in the original, that is to read, to experience Sanskrit narrative uh, through a literary lens. And that's what my own work has always done. Now, I, I accept that uh, in the UK and to a certain extent in the US, uh, scholars have uh, have always been working on Sanskrit as literature, but it is is not really regarded as uh, a mainstream way of uh, interacting with Sanskrit texts. Certainly, epic scholars uh, can do this. Puranic scholars can do this. The mythological scholars, uh, although there there are few on the ground these days, might do this, but. Uh, 
I, I'm so pleased that with this volume, we've brought together so many interesting scholars reading text through uh, a literary lens. And as, as you said, Raj, uh, some very senior and established scholars, but at the same time, so many emerging scholars as well. So as far as I'm concerned, this is a real milestone. This uh, bringing together scholars from, uh, from all over the world at different stages in their careers, but it's united with this one this one idea that we can read Sanskrit texts as literature, ask all sorts of different questions that uh, are not asked by philosophers or religious studies scholars or comparative mythologists. Yeah, I mean, another thing I, I suppose I should clarify is that as I'm recalling what that what that vision was, and and as as everyone here on this podcast. Uh, has experienced it's 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 quite something to birth the vision into the world and, and publish uh, publish a PhD thesis or a translation etc cetera, etc. Cetera. But the vision at the time was um, the, the celebration of narrative qua narrative uh, stories as you know as as, as Wendy Doniger uh, I, th- I think the phrase she uses in the introduction is in the forward is along the lines of you know as an ocean of stories and that stories the the, the ocean of stories well transcends what we think of the Puranas proper which are utterly vast. I mean, a good number, if not half of our contributors were studying the Sanskrit epics. I believe half of our contributors are scholars of the Mahabharata and the yes, Ramayana, yes. because because it seems that the epic studies might be, uh, our fine colleagues in epic studies were perhaps a little further along in, in that sort of thrust of regarding the Mahabharata as literature, what you know, Hiltabaita says some years ago, you know, that's one of the, the lacks in Mahabharata studies. And you know, um, perhaps as, a, as an eager uh, dissertator, uh, sort of staking out the claim that we need to look at Sanskrit narrative as narrative, uh, in addition to whatever else we're doing, um, you know, perhaps uh, there is room, obviously, without question. And it's an extremely important enterprise. Philological work is very important. Historicist work is very important. Um, literary studies and narratology is also very important, and they can be very uh, mutually um, beneficial. So the vision was, let's look at stories as stories. Let's look at Sanskrit stories as stories. And I interviewed Lori Patton, who's um, she's now president of Middlebury uh, College in Vermont, but she's also still active. I mean, she still produces... By some uh, grace, she agreed to contribute to this, and she's uh, one of the original contributors of Prana Prentice some 30 years ago. And what she said on the podcast was, you were able to seize a moment. And really, her saying it crystallized it for me that there was a moment in the field where it was time to sort of take the temperature because the tides have turned or are turning or about to turn or are turning by virtue of this publication the tides have turned with respect to uh, dismissing or abstaining from regarding these stories as literature in addition to all else. I think that's as a fair bit about the vision, whether sharp or blurred, we'll let the readers uh, judge, but uh, yeah, Yeah. so I've said enough. (laughs) I can, I can very well understand your motivation to, uh, um, well, change the perspective uh, because it's it's I, I I myself too have the feeling like my comments that often when dealing with Sanskrit texts it's it's often very philological which is not a bad thing but um, it very often happens that um, sort of the content of the of the 
material is actually not at the center of the of the perspective um and this is of course especially um um uh, crucial if you're looking at at, at narrative texts and at stories um so this 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 change of perspective what is the the the, the applying applying a nar- uh, literary lens is as is this um the division you had i can i can very well understand uh the the wish to do so and um i mean and you have done an admirable job by uh by uh, putting this volume together and um so yeah wendy doniger herself mentions in the foreword that uh, um she wrote 30 years i mean she wrote in the foreword uh to your current book referring to purana perennis that a lot has changed and um it's the that that this is that uh a shift to literary lens um, is very, makes very makes a lot of sense to me. So, but let me um, cont- let me turn to the other aspect of the book to its, of its title, and that is Sanskrit narrative, because uh, literature is not only narrative; all kinds of texts are actually literature. But what you're dealing with specifically is Sanskrit narrative, um, and you also on the, the contributions in the volume, they focus on the Mahabharata and the Ramayana, as I said, those are, those are also at the beginning of the volume and also on various uh, Puranic texts. So my question is actually, I actually have two questions, two big questions. First is, what exactly is Sanskrit narrative? Why is the Sanskrit important and why narrative? And um, second, why should we look at the epics and the Puranas to learn more about Sanskrit narrative? So those are my my two questions, Nakamas. Well, so we one one thing that I have in my mind, Dominic, is that to be a Hindu. Now I don't want. I hope this doesn't provoke anybody. Oh, Raj, maybe as the owner of a podcast, you hope it does provoke somebody, but. Uh, I don't want to be provocative, but I one of the ways uh, I think of Hindu traditions is to an extent to be a Hindu is to have internalized Puranic discourse, uh, to to have internalized uh, epic discourse. I know people say. They, uh, people who've grown up in an Indian cultural environment, that have grown up in an Indian family, say they cannot remember the first time they heard the story of Rama. It's a bit like us growing up in the West. We can't remember the first time we heard the story of X, Y or Z. It's so much part of our, our life and our culture. So the epic, epic narratives... Uh, epic uh, Puranic narratives are imbibed with, well, I would say one mother's one's mother's milk in an Indian family. It's going to be on your grandfather's knee or on your grandmother's knee where you first hear these stories. And I think to be Hindu is to an extent to have internalized these stories these these narratives so to understand what hindu traditions are about it's so important 
to to know these stories, to know these narratives. And from my point of view, as uh, as a scholar who works with literature and who who uses what I call the, the literary lens, I want to find out how narratives work. So it's like it's like uh, opening the the green baize curtain to see what's going on behind, to open the bonnet of of Sanskrit narrative to see how they work, to see how uh, narratives are constructed, to see how they function, but without getting uh, tied up in narratological discourse. I, I, I myself have always been a bit hostile towards narratology. I'm interested in narrative. I love narrative. I, I'm very interested in how narrative works. But there's something very sterile about narratology itself. And again, I, I hope I don't cause alarm with this. But my vision of narratology is a river that flows out into a desert and then dries up. I couldn't really see where narratology leads. Once you've described uh, in, in dry scholarly terms all of the different times, sorts of interlocutors and the different sorts of registers, you've got that vocabulary. But you can't do anything with it. Or I felt it it just reached an end. So I've always steered a little bit away from narratology uh, to to enjoy the enjoy the narrative itself. Narratology perhaps is a framework or a structure for exploring narrative, but you don't actually get out there into the narrative itself. So uh so Dominic, the reason for studying Puranic narrative, uh uh epic narrative is that these these are uh, the, the the very pillars or the foundation even of Hindu identity to a large extent. And to understand these really important traditions, we need to explore the narratives that un- underlie them. But but it's not just it's not just that. The narratives themselves have so much value. They are beautiful, they are wonderful, they are captivating. And it's that 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 sense of awe, that sense of wonder that one experiences when you're exploring these narratives, uh, that's what really drives me on. I I feel like an explorer. I want to know what happens next. So that's where I am. Yeah, so um, (laughs) I'm in my Zoom room here uh, um, in podcast mode, and I was uh, about to ask a question of Dominic, and then I realized, (laughs) wait a minute, (laughs) wait a minute. I have to do most of the talking today. Oh, you're um, being so, the so, one so, today. Yeah. So uh, correct. Uh, so 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 narrative it perhaps is a fancy scholarly word for simply put, story. And what I've said to many guests before is, uh, oversimplifications are not only allowed on podcasts; they're welcome. <laughs> Sound bites are welcome on podcasts. So so story. So it took me a long time to realize that I love studying story. I love story. I love experiencing story. I love transmitting stories, telling stories, studying stories. And when we are in the mode of studying, we are, of course, in the quote-unquote left-brain mode of slicing and dicing and demarcating, which is very, very important. But I think it's crucial when studying story to first be able to appreciate story. One can pick apart a symphony and understand the chords and understand the theme and you know and understand you know the this is a Mozart symphony. It's you know understand what's happening, what he's doing, 
something uh, different from what came before him and you know how the romantics changed what he was doing one could understand the historical context and understand the elements of a symphonic work even the mechanics of instrumentation but that's different from the experience of music and there's something uh, irreducible and inalienable about narrative that has to do with the experience of the story and the appreciation of the story and the ways in which the story is a vehicle for thought, for culture. And, and um, I think it was Ramanujan uh, who said probably in his 300 uh, Ramayana essay, the nerdy reference, who cares, uh, that, that nobody hears the, the Mahabharata or the Ramayana for the first time. No, no Indian hears the Ramayana for the first time. When w- w- Think about, when did you first hear the story of the tortoise and the hare? Do you remember? When did you first hear the story of... Um, 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 Little Red Riding Hood. If you come from a traditional religious context, whether you are faithful yourself or not, when did you first hear the story of Moses? When did you first hear the stories of Jesus of Nazareth and the miracles he performed? And so they are what I call, I think somewhere in the book, the lifeblood of culture, right? And not just Indic culture. These stories are the lifeblood of Indic culture, but every culture has a symbiosis between the stories it perpetu- they, they, they tell over time and the values in those stories that make that culture. So the stories preserve, the 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 stories preserve the the, the values which the culture still values. And there's a symbiosis. It's not that there's a shortage of creativity or, or 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 storytelling and how much ends up on the cutting room floor every minute. But the stories that are told for a long time are the ones that remain relevant to a culture, and can tell us much about the worldview, the mindset, the values of that culture. So. Whether the Indic culture beyond the the, the power of um, uh, story, particularly larger, grander stories, epic stories, mythological stories, stories that have to do with origins of our people, the origins of the universe, uh, you know, the, the the meaning of life, what is virtue, what is right, you know, stories that have to do with the, the what we grapple with, the guts of the human experience, the the questions that never go away. Um, those are captivating tales and they're probably inexhaustible in their capacity to be interpreted and reinterpreted. And so this is what we are studying, the stories that happen to be in this very complex, but acoustically beautiful language called Sanskrit, <laughs> which uh, for better or worse has been the, 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 the dominant uh, language, uh, the, the language in which, you know, the the, 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 the power structure that Brahmanism has, has preserved as, you know, the sacerdotal tongue and the language of philosophy and ritual for quite some time. And this, by virtue of that process and its longevity, is why these stories still, you know, uh, still reverberate to this day. And so I don't know if I've answered your question, but hopefully oh. you'll forgive my rambling because as I say to my guests, it's all about the journey. <laughs> so here we are. No, you, you have indeed answered uh, at least my first question and beautifully so. Um, yeah, I mean, you can really feel um, when the two of you are talking how passionate you are about Sanskrit narrative. And I can, I myself, I can very much resonate with uh, with the importance you attach for it, uh, attached to it and um, the way you you appreciate it. Um, but let me turn again to return actually to my second question, perhaps, which is a bit nasty, but probably it's not as nasty uh, as it as it might come off. Um, so there are many Sanskrit texts and there are many, many Indian texts, many Indic texts, um, 
also from from ancient South Asia. I mean, we have Pali texts, we have Magadhi texts, and we also have, for example, um, uh, literature uh, such as that by Kalidasa, the famous Kalidasa, who also wrote in Sanskrit, and those are also Sanskrit stories. So uh, the question is, the question is, why the, the epics and Puranas? I realize that this is probably more of a a, a pra- pragmatic question or a practical question because the two of you are, are epics and Purana scholars. I know that, but still, uh, is there a is there a specific um, significance you attach to the epics and the Puranas, where in order to study Sanskrit narrative? Uh, yes, I think some. <laughs> oh, sorry, go ahead. Right. Thomas first. Yeah. All right, uh, Dominic. The real answer is we only get one lifetime at a time. <laughs> There's only so much we that, can that we know of that we know lifetime of. that we only know about this one. Now, uh, any Purana, any either of the epics is much more than a li- one lifetime's work. Uh, I think people more or less uh, fall into what they're studying almost by accident. And if you fall into one or other of the epics, that can keep you amused for much more than a lifetime. Raj and I were just saying before we started recording that nobody knows all the Puranas. You can spend your lifetime on a single Purana and still not really have your head around it. So the field is so vast and so rich and so unexplored. So uh, that that said, these, these, these are wonderful collections, but I, I would like to say in my own defence that, in fact, in my <laughs> own paper, I look at uh, uh, Vedas, the Brahmanas, the epics, uh, Puranas, and indeed the dramas as well. So uh, I'm... I'm Perhaps unlike other scholars that I that I do look perhaps more broadly, but I can certainly understand why somebody could easily spend their life on Bhagavata Purana or Vishnu Purana, the Skanda Purana. Nobody will ever get their head around the Skanda Purana. No one can ever get their head around the whole of Mahabharata. So. Uh, why not? Yes, of course, we must look beyond these texts, and there are wonderful narratives beyond these texts, but there is a limit what, what each scholar can do and what we as a community can achieve. Uh, yeah, so, McComas, you just made a tantalizing comment about, you know, the, 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 the genres of text through which you trace what you trace for your paper, and I think we'll return to that in a moment after I chime in. I think uh, I think it's uh, it's... It's a great question you asked, Dominic. I think you're right. On one level, there's a pragmatism in terms of, you know, uh, there's there, there's one life to live, and there's there there you know the, this is in in that in which I'm trained in terms of Sanskrit narrative, you know, based on training and interests. But I think the broader question, if I'm understanding correctly, is why the epics and Puranas, and I think part of that has to do with a very self conscious nature of these texts where they are perpetually telling you about themselves and what they do in a way that other texts don't and the reason they're doing that 30,000 foot view you know centuries and millennia at a glance 
We have ancient Vedic traditions, post-Vedic periods. We have Upanishadic, Shamanic traditions. And then we have this cacophony of voices in the Mahabharata, folding in nivrity and poverty, folding in various systems of thought into sort of the Brahmanic platform in a very self-conscious way. So from the Mahabharata onwards, through the idiom of, 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 of Brahmanic Sanskrit narrative, we have Hinduism wrestling with what Hinduism is, and that's a word that's not only problematic now, it has no real analog within tradition, because in many ways it's a walking contradiction, and in many ways it is um, a moving target, and it is um, a tapestry or a symphony, where how, how do we use the name of one melody for the whole symphony? And so the, 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 the epics and the Puranas really present themselves as working out core Indic concepts, ideas, themes that result from perhaps even divergent heritages where, you know, the the Markani Purana, which is the Purana I know best of the Puranas because my work is the Devi Mahatmya and the Surya Mahatmya that are part of the Markani Purana. And the Markani Purana begins (laughs) with um, a student of Vyasa Jaimini, Vyasa, the great Vyasa, the author of the Mahabharata, you know, ringing the doorbell of Markandeya. Markandeya is busy doing some kind of Brahmanical puja, no doubt. And he interrupts him. He says, hey, Markandeya, please, I have these questions about the Mahabharata that I just can't figure out. I have these four burning questions. I'm a student of Vyasa who wrote the Mahabharata, but I have these four burning questions. Will you answer my questions? And so the, the, so the Markane Purana, and I think the Puranas in general, are responding to the epics and continuing the discussion of what is this all about? What is important? What is virtue? What is, you know, what is, you know, what is life all about? And I think because the epics and the Puranas so self-consciously deliberate and pontificate playfully about um, poor Indic ideas, I think they're, they're, they're a rich avenue of, um, of exploration. Uh, for for long lasting Indic ideas. Yes. Can I just can I just jump in there again? And one thing that I learned from one of my students uh, and now colleague Martin Gluckman. Martin made a very interesting observation that the Puranas were the first genre to systemize all of this knowledge, more or less chronologically. And the Puranas have effectively are the history of everything, from the creation of the world, the creation of the deities, the origin of humankind, uh, the origin of, of the great lineages, and then the destruction of the world, and then how the cycle will begin all over again. And, of course, embedded in that are all of the stories, all of the narratives relating to the particular deity to whom that Purana is dedicated. So uh, so the earlier genres are enormously rich in mythology and dharma teachings. Uh, the Vedas, the Upanishads, the Brahmanas, the, the epics, but it's not until you get to the Puranas that all of that material is arranged systematically and chronologically. So each of those, each of those um Puranas to an extent, and I'm particularly thinking of the Vishnu Purana here because it's the one I know the best, is is 
I call it a, a history of everything and guide to life. As these are the two things it really achieves. That is, it's got the universe from its creation to its destruction and through its cycles of recreation and redestruction, plus all of the Dharma teachings in there as well. And just one very quick comment that was spawned by what McComas is saying, that, you know, you're in it, you've internalized so much, it's, it's difficult to call to mind what you've internalized. But one of the things that I contemplate uh, is the very genre and the, the nomenclature of Purana, these texts call themselves uh, the ancient ones, tales of old. This is, it's, it's, they, they, they purposefully elide their relative youth and their historicity to say, this is ancient wisdom. And so they're telling you, this is the stuff from ancient wisdom that matters. And in an interesting way, it's where, it's where the, the you know, the highfalutin Brahmanical teachings meet the, the 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 devotionalism and meet religion on the ground and the religion of the masses so they're, they're really a profound and important bridge that we're only really beginning to understand and and what i was musing to mccombe is that you know uh, um, 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 i'm creating a resource for Purana studies uh, hopefully to inspire a website that that dominic is well aware of i've asked for his help in it and he's been gracious enough to 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 agree to help with it and i'm thinking to myself i was saying to mccombe it would be great as a resource to sort of map out, you know, current scholarship, you know, manuscripts, you know, the, the fantastic projects happening, like the the, the, the critical edition project of um, the Skanda Purana, for example, at Leiden, like uh, the, the Bhagavata Purana project at the Oxford Center for Hindu Studies, and, and map it out. So, you know, in a generation's time, we'll have many more scholars interested in and well-equipped for the Puranas. And then I said to him, but actually, I myself need this resource because I don't know what's in the Puranas and I study them. And I was teasing him that none of us knows the Puranas and we're lucky if we're to know one of, one of the 18 Mahapuranas. And so, um, so yeah, I hope, I hope you're satisfied, Dominic. That's all we have. <laughs> I am indeed more than satisfied because when I asked you uh, the question um, about the, about the sources you, you picked, I essentially expected that you would say, well, it's just what we do and you can study everything and kind of know everything, uh, which is, uh, perfectly understandable given that the epics for instance are not just two texts but rather it's an entire library as as you are well aware and as as many listeners are aware so if, the, the, if i mentioned the two sanskrit epics i'm talking about an immense corpus actually um but you did not that was actually the 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 smaller part of your answer uh is the the prac the the practical the practical limitations uh, you face when approaching the study of Sanskrit narrative, but um, you you give very 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 satisfying answers as to why the the epics and Puranas are particularly interesting and important. Um, and well, I now I now know a lot more about it and then uh, have new have new ideas about this than before. So I'm more than satisfied with uh, with your with your answers. Um, so, but yeah, let us let's let's uh, return to the volume back from the cosmic dimensions that McComas mentioned to the one to the one uh, volume we're talking about. So um, you you mentioned the the literary lens, and we also talked about the the sources and about Sanskrit narrative. Now, uh, I understand that only a few people on this planet are actually doing research on 
on uh, on those sources, and perhaps even few of them are able or willing to apply what apply a literary lens uh, look at the Sanskrit narrative. So uh, my question is about the the contributors of the volume. Um, how did you approach them or how did you, I mean, select them? Because very often it happens that such a volume um, is the product of a conference, but this is, is not the case with, with this book. Um, so uh, how did you, how did you, let's say, find the people and uh, how did you um, draw them into your, your vision? Yeah, I, I, I say, uh, let's see, I'm trying to recall what that process was like, because I, I had volunteered to do most of the um, the um, yeah, the correspondence. Um, and I think that started off as um, people that I had collaborated with. Um, and really, it was reaching out to people that I knew, whose work I knew well, and we had been in touch because they'd been on the podcast. Or we'd been emailing about, you know, vignettes of the epics or sources and and a lot of it frankly was personal networking for people whose work i admired and i was already in touch with and some of whom i collaborated with and then um and really after that organic process and so many of them said yes and then i said to, to I circled back to mccomas and said like well look we're positioning this as a, a landmark volume and i think it should be um so let's let me do some cold calls if you will <laughs> let me email some people who are some people, you know, who are doing good work in your field, who you're aware, who we should invite, you know, some people just weren't able to because of other commitments. Also, it turns out that this was a product of the pandemic, really, because I was emailing people early 2020. So really, this was a pandemic uh, 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 offspring, if you will. Um, but really, it was personal networking, and then I thought, well, who are some of the key voices? Who, who, you know, who's done some really gripping work? Who's, who's presented some interesting papers at the World Sanskrit Conference that we have that, that we're in touch with? But um, even the people where I contacted them and I had not interacted with them before, um, they responded quite favorably. For some reason, they were able to buy into the vision that was presented. Um, and it probably didn't hurt that I indicated some of the fine people who had already agreed to contribute. So they understood that this wasn't some, you know, lone ranger independent scholar with a hoop dream and who knows where this will go. And so um, to, to my recollection, that was the process. But it didn't, it didn't take nearly as long as I thought it would. I mean, so much of this process is correspondence back and forth with, oh, you name it, so much of this is not our editing chops, uh, not even our, you know, our, our reading or, or, or revising. It's 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 just bringing people together and passing information back and forth. But I was really surprised at how quickly we were able to amass a, a stellar roster of people. Um, uh, either Grace was on our side, or uh, it was coincidental, or I assure you, I didn't bribe anybody. So who knows? But they said yes. Here we are. <laughs> Are you sure you didn't bribe anybody? Because it's it's a great challenge to bring eighteen people to to do something together to contribute to even to just the volume. It's an achievement, really. Yeah, and the eighteen wasn't even planned. Although, of course, many of the the the, the Indologists and Indophiles in the audience will know. You know, eighteen chapters of the Mahabharata, eighteen books, uh, eighteen uh, books of the Mahabharata, eighteen chapters of the Bhagavad Gita, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. 
And uh, hilariously, I was going to contribute, but there was so much else going on. There was another book that came up that I was writing. It was a public book and, you know, the ongoing barrage of, you know, podcasts and clients and blah, 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 blah. So I didn't have the bandwidth to contribute um, uh, beyond, of course, the introduction uh, and the administration. And I thought, well, maybe it's a good thing I didn't because, you know, it would have thrown off the auspicious 18 uh, uh, alignment. But uh, all jokes aside, Dominic, you're right. It's no small feat to bring together 18 academics for anything. Um, uh, the other thing I want to say while I have the floor is a comment you, you said earlier where, you know, through our answers, you know, you learned something or uh, about the Puranas or the importance of the Puranas. And really, I've, I've joked a couple of times that, you know, I'm all about public education. And in the, in the case of the podcast, it's where I'm educated in public, really, <laughs> because I learn. I learned so much from the guests and what they have to bring. So, uh, McComas, do you remember anything else about the process of roping people in that I've somehow missed? Or what was that like for you? Just, uh, I just wanted to go back 10 or 15 years. The uh, the epic section of the World Sanskrit Conference has always been very active. But for years and years, it was the epic and Puranic section and I can't remember exactly when it was. Let's say 15 years ago, we decided to split the Puranic section off the epic section. 2015. It was my first uh, World Sanskrit Conference, actually, 2015. 2015. Okay, so we're looking at nearly 10 years ago. And I think this really helped to establish uh, an independent identity for Puranic studies. And so when we were looking at uh, uh, recruiting uh, authors for our work, that was an important source. But uh, of course, I must also mention the Dubrovnik International Conference on Sanskrit Epics and Puranas, uh, which is a very important uh, networking opportunity held in Dubrovnik in Croatia every three years. And this brings this brings epic and Puranic scholars together from all over the world. It's 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 everyone's favorite conference, I think, because it's it, it's intimate and it's a, the most beautiful city in the world, and is always enjoyable. So again, uh, the world uh, just to reinforce what Raj was saying, the, the World Sanskrit Conference and indeed the uh, DICSEP, as we call it, the Dubrovnik Con International Conference on Sanskrit epics and Puranas. Uh, these are the main places where, where, where our, our, our friends, our colleagues, like-minded people meet. And so it was quite easy, in fact, to draw on, uh, on, on these scholars. Plus, of course, uh, Professor Laurie Patton, who, who, as Raj had mentioned, was one of the original contributors to uh, Purana Puranas that came out 30 years ago. Uh, she's, she, we approached her and she kindly agreed and has pro provided a, a really wonderful paper on uh, reading Sanskrit narratives through the lens of magical realism uh, in the sense of perhaps uh, Salman Rushdie, and, and I think that that was a wonderful contribution, one of my favorite papers. Yeah, I will say one one very quick thing uh, that I'll be really frank uh, that to be honest, I was quite I was quite touched uh, that so many people were willing to you know trust us or at least you know uh, coming out of the gate trust me with the process and you know you, one doesn't assume that they didn't that they've necessarily read your work perhaps you know many of these people I been in communication with you know owing to interactions at conferences and but but many people 
many of these contributors as I were, I wasn't. And so the 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 faith that they showed either in the vision or the execution, I mean, uh, <laughs> I think I mentioned Macambas a couple of times. I was sort of pinching myself that everyone said yes and they were gung-ho and just took on a life of its own before long. And did you did you what did you say to them with regard to the the contents of their contribution or the methodological orientation? Did you kind of kind of try to to shape the the papers or anything like that? All I said really in the invitation email was, you know, we're, we're putting together something along the lines of Piranha Piranhas 2.0. And by the same token, there's so many, if not the majority of the papers in this volume are epic papers. So it's much more than what Piranha Piranhas was doing in a sense. I mean, regarding, you know, uh, genre. Uh, but I just conveyed a sense of, you know, we think it's time to sort of take the temperature of the field and really whatever text uh, within Sanskrit narrative you're studying, whatever, um, whatever you know, particular methodology or angle. I mean, you have free reign. We are just sort of uh, prioritizing what I think of as sort of the synchronic dimension as well as a diachronic. So we're we're looking at these narratives as narratives, and whatever you want to do with that is up to you. I mean, and you know, although we 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 use this term literary lens, or into my mind, sort of sort of the, the 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 savoring of the synchronic, you know, the world within the text is you know the 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 the, the, the highlighting and the and then and the examination of the world within the text first and foremost. It, and then perhaps looking at the world behind the text or the various layers, uh, the archaeological digs within the text. Um, but but although they are united under this overarching we think of as a literary lens, there is a variety of, of approaches, I'd say, in the volume, a variety of different aims and objectives and, and relationships um, and and sorts of questions that are being asked. So it's, it's interesting in that they do contribute towards a turning of the tide, if you will, in the field of Sanskrit narrative studies, but there are a number of potential avenues of, of future research. I mean, McComas um, mentioned uh, Laurie Patton's, you know, quite novel usage of um, literary lens, um, and there there are a number uh, there are a number of I think methodological innovations in how to study these while taking seriously this the, the fabric of the story. There's still a lot of margin for innovation and, and choice in terms of how you will now study these narratives. Um, and uh, uh, I think we were to circle back. I think you were going to tell us about yeah. your particular paper. Yeah, yeah. Well, I wanted, well, that's actually, that's my next question is to you, McComas, just, just one uh, paper as an, as an example, because the two of you, most of the, the almost 500 pages of the volume weren't even written by the two of you. Um, but uh, one chapter was, that's the last one by you, McComas. And yeah, um, I would be very happy to hear more about uh, your paper as a representative of all the, so to say, of the literary lens too. Uh, thanks, Dominic. Well, just very briefly, uh, Urkveda 1095 is a very famous and wonderful dialogue between two characters, Pururavas, who is a, a mortal king, and Urvashi, who is a, an apsaras. She is a divine, uh, heavenly maiden. And they have a relationship, but their relationship has hit a rock. And what we have in the Urgveda is a fragment of 
a much larger narrative. And I've, I describe it as being uh, a section of a mini-series taken out of context. Taken by itself, it's absolutely tantalising, this one dialogue. Because it has no context, it, it's open to interpretation. And roughly what happens in this dialogue, it begins with Pururavas, the, the mortal king, saying, hey, wife, if we don't have this conversation now, we'll regret it for the rest of our lives. And she says, I'm out of here. I'm leaving. I'm like the wind. You cannot hold me. Uh, and then he says, well, I might just die. And I might, I might die. The wolves might eat me. And then her heart melts. And she says, oh, please don't die. I'll come back to you and everything will be all right. So, so there is, I, I call this the world's earliest marital tiff and it has no context in the Rigveda but it is so tantalizing and open-ended we don't know how they met we don't know how they married we don't know what's caused this tiff and we don't know what's what happens afterwards and because it's so open-ended it's invited interpretation and recreation throughout a history of at least 1,500 years. Now, what I did in this particular paper is I looked at how the, this narrative of Pururavas and Urvashi is treated in multiple genres. So, first of all, it appears in the Shatapata Pramana. Now, the Pramanas are a genre whose function is to explain the Vedas. And that's exactly what they did. They took this narrative and they they added a prequel and they added a sequel to this. So that strange, floating, disembodied narrative from the Urkveda is given an entire story in the Shatapata Brahmana. It appears in the epics, it appears again in um in the Puranas, uh, in the Puranas, for example, woven into this story are the Trimurti, so uh, Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva, and Dharma, Artha, and Karma. These are the main sorts of themes of the Puranas. So you can see how the Puranas reinterpret uh, this this narrative, this dialogue, in very much Puranic terms. Later again, in uh, for example, in the hands of Kalidasa, this this narrative is turned into a drama, and the purpose of the drama is entertainment. So he's expanded it again and made it wonderfully, wonderfully entertaining. And I think one of my favourite uh, recreations of the Puravas, uh, Puravas and Urvashi legend or myth is in the Skanda Purana. Now, the Skanda Purana basically exists to, uh, to, to glorify particular pilgrimage places. And in glorifying uh, a number of places in South India, they say, oh, this is the place where Pururava said this, or this is the place where Urvashi said that. And it's basically reinventing or re uh, uh, reusing that narrative, I call it an advertorial because it, it's simply promoting the sanctity of uh, a particular pilgrimage site. And that's something like 
1500 years after the narrative was originally recorded in the Rig Veda. So what this does, uh, what I've done in this paper is I've taken uh, a, a dialogue from the Rig Veda and I've traced its deployment through these multiple genres to, to show how each of the genres functions, to show how they function within this uh, this wonderful universe of Sanskritic literary creativity. Thank you, McComas, uh, for this for this summary. Now, I had the pleasure um, to to read your paper because uh, I, I I was given the PDF by Raj before, um, but uh, I guess that many others uh, will also want. Uh, to read it and uh, your paper and the others. So my question is, how do I get a copy of the book? How will the listeners of this podcast uh, get it? Will they have to order it from Australia? Can they download it somewhere? Where where does one get the the vision? Uh, the <laughs> well, the book is uh, actually one of the great features of it is is that it is available open access. If you've got the internet, <laughs> you can get the book. Um, uh, if, uh, the ANU Australian National University Press website, the link is actually in the podcast notes. The book is brand new, freshly published, just out, and you can click on a link and have access to these 18 um, fascinating papers, you know, at, at, at your convenience. Okama said, you want to say anything else? Well, either one of you about uh, open access or ANU Press or anything else that you want to add, add to that? I, I would add, not only is it open access, it's free. You don't have to pay for it. So, yes, available at uh, no cost to you. That's very good news indeed, I think. Uh, so many, many, many more people uh, will have access to it. And, um, yeah, well, as you know, I am... Uh, I am very much in favor of, of open access. So this is good news indeed. Uh, every new open access publication um, is, a, is a step in the right direction. All right. So that's uh, uh, regarding this volume. Perhaps just briefly uh, regarding future plans the two, the two of you have because you already work together. And so my last question is, uh, what's next? Do you already have another vision or are you planning on on revising your revisions already well we have the world sanskrit conference in kathmandu in december 2024 there will be uh, a purana panel there again uh we're, we're just about to call for papers and this has always been a great source of uh uh a great stimulus to puranic studies all sorts of good people coming to these conferences, contributing papers. So I'm really hopeful, Raj, that uh, you and I again will have a good set of Puranic papers uh, that we will publish as the proceedings of the World Sanskrit Conference in Kathmandu 2024. Um, sure, absolutely. Let's do that. <laughs> no, definitely. Um, that sounds great, actually. I look forward to it. Uh, in terms of future plans, I have a translation of the Devi Mahatmya that's been sitting on my desk for a year. Uh, <laughs> I need to find the bandwidth to just tidy up a little bit of the Sanskrit and get it off to uh, a, a, an academic press that's interested in it. Beyond that, I'm really interested in the Mahabharata these days. There's the Mahabharata book that I've been itching to start. Um, and 
perhaps that's next after the translation and always happy to work with McComas. Uh, we'll see what comes and, and clearly I'll also be collaborating with you, Dominic, in terms of creating this resource for Piranha studies. So good times. And this, and you know, this crystallized at Dubrovnik. If any of you are out there, <laughs> scholars in the field in particular, and you haven't experienced the Dubrovnik international conference on the Sanskrit epics and Puranas, go, <laughs> just go. Don't even think about it. An amazing experience. I can very much agree. Um, I was there and uh, it is fantastic as always. Okay, well, work will continue. This is excellent news indeed. So um, it is now my pleasure to thank you for for appearing. And since this is actually, this is Raj's uh, podcast, um, I will now uh, hand over to you, Raj for the last words since you also has the first ones <laughs> the alpha and the omega indeed so thank you very much dominic for agreeing to host us for this flip interview clearly um uh we're comfortable with you and you're you're, you're an astute reader and uh, and uh and uh and a colleague of ours and so we're very happy that you were able to do this for us and now the baton has been passed so I'm now the host once again, um, however, briefly to say thank you very much all for listening. Uh, until next time, keep listening, keep reading, keep thinking, keep contemplating the power of narrative, Sanskritic or otherwise. Take care. <laughs>